Morning, everyone. So we're going to continue in our series through the book of Ephesians, and um, we're going to be looking at the passage that, that Al read for us, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. So before we dive in, I want to just ask you a question and kind of get you thinking about your own maybe attitude, evaluation of things. Um, what are your expectations of the church. We all have them. So are your expectations of the church really high? And maybe as a result you are regularly or repeatedly disappointed, maybe hurt, and you find over time your cynicism quotient rising with each passing year or the frustration quotient because reality seems to fall so far short of what you expect or desire? Or maybe are your expectations of the church pretty low because maybe you're not all that concerned, honestly speaking, as far as where your heart's at on a given week or month, you're not all that concerned about the health and growth of the church. You know, as long as some semblance of normalcy is maintained, it doesn't really, you know, take much of a central place in your life and attention. So if your expectations are really high, you know, maybe chastened expectations could be a healthy thing. So would you criticize a hospital because of all the sick people that filled its rooms? Like, what's wrong with these people? Well, why are we surprised or disappointed or annoyed when the church is filled with flawed, struggling, sometimes, often, annoying family members? And guess what? You know, don't flatter yourself. I won't flatter myself. We're all a little bit annoying at times, right? We all are in that boat. We all need the hospital. If your expectations are too low, perhaps you need to hear what God thinks of the church, how important it is, how central it is to his heart, his agenda, that his heart would be your heart. So just listen to one representative text in Acts 20, 28. Paul is speaking to the elders in Ephesus. These are the Ephesian elders, the leaders of this church that he wrote this letter to. And he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. How precious and valuable must the church be that God would be willing to spend the most precious blood on the planet, the blood of Christ, to purchase this church, this bride. 
So I wonder if Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, you know, came over to your house for lunch today. And if you and his church was one of the conversation topics, what would he say to you? What would he say to me? Well, I think Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 is certainly one of the things that he would say. Um, It's certainly his heart for us and for his church. And I think also um, Spurgeon's got a good word for us. So I'm going to just quote something by Spurgeon here before we dive into the text. And I think either way, whether maybe your expectations are too high, I mean, in one sense, There are ideals painted in the Bible where our expectations can't be too high, but I think you understand what I'm saying. In a fallen world with flawed saints, um, oftentimes, I mean, the church is just going to be under construction until Jesus comes back, right? So whether your expectations might tend to be too high or too low, Spurgeon's got a good word, and then certainly Ephesians 4 is a good word for all of us. So here's what he, he writes. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. I don't know if you'll join me on Friday. That's one of my prayer requests for Bethel. Lord, make it the dearest place on earth. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty. But that is no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back. For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. Would you like that to be true here? (laughs) Like, in actuality, in our experience, when somebody comes in and visits, like, that's what they experience. Do you know that you have a meaningful and a necessary part to play in making it so? If this is your church home, each and every one of us have a necessary and meaningful part to play. So what does that part look like? Well, here's how. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. There's three points in the outline. If you grabbed a sheet on the way in or if you pull it up on your device, you can also follow along. The points will be here on the screen. So first point, walk together in a manner 
worthy. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, so he's writing from prison, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So this verse 1 of chapter 4 is like a turning point in the letter, and verse 1 is like a heading over all of 4, 1 to 620, the rest of the book. Okay, so Paul is going to unpack, not just in 1 to 16, but in the rest of this book, what this worthy walk looks like. He's going to unpack what manner of life is in accord with our calling. He's just spent a bunch of time talking about that calling and how amazing it is, the just amazing and abundant grace of God, the riches of his mercy, okay? So we then, as Christ's people, okay, if you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, if you've been, you know, even though you were dead in your sins, you were made alive together with Christ, like it says in chapter two, if you've been born born again, then we can either on a daily, weekly basis, we can either live as Christ's people in a way that's in harmony with our calling or in a way that's dissonant with our calling. So we're going to look at how Paul unpacks what it looks like to live in harmony with our calling in verses 2 to 16. And then he's going to go on, you know, and he talks about our calling in relation to anger and speech and sexuality and marriage and parenting and work, etc., in the chapters to come. So, if you are in Christ, your calling is mind-bogglingly wonderful, and it's all sheer grace. Remember, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Then he goes on to enumerate those things. So we deserve nothing but curse for our sin, but we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Predestined for adoption into God's family as beloved sons and daughters. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We've been set free from slavery to sin. He's lavished on us the riches of his grace. And now, for one and following, he's calling us to live out our calling, which is why Paul employs that metaphor of walking. Okay, it's another way of saying, here's how you are to live, walking, living. It's a metaphor for life. So he's exhorting these Ephesian Christians and us as well to live in a manner that is in harmony with our calling. So this walking metaphor is repeated in the book of Ephesians. Um, You can see a few of these instances, or actually all of them, I think, I've got up here. So chapter 2, verse 2, you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Chapter 4, verse 1 is our passage. 417, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Chapter 5, verse 2, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So you can see how that's a a further explication of what it means to walk in a manner worthy is to walk in love in the same way that Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. 5.8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then 5.17, look carefully then how you walk, 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So, you know how important this is, the manner in which we walk. I think we know this intuitively. You know that it is not enough to merely lay out propositionally the path a Christian is supposed to walk. You know, do this, don't do this. Do that, don't do this. The manner in which we do things, the manner in which we don't do other things, makes so much difference. Someone can tell you the truth, but if they say it in a demeaning or condescending way, or in an indifferent, disinterested, distracted way, don't they unsay with their attitude what they said with their words? Yes? No? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. So, take the blessings that I mentioned just a minute ago. You have redemption, the forgiveness of your trespasses, freedom. He's lavished upon us the riches of his grace. So if, if you've been forgiven an infinite debt, if you've turned from your sin and trusted Jesus as your Savior, he's forgiven all of your sin, past, present, future. He's lavishly poured out the riches of his grace on you and forgiveness. Should that change how we relate to other people when they sin against us? The manner even in which we deal with those who sin against us? Like, how can we not forgive someone else and not hold a grudge if we owed God an immeasurable amount and someone else sins against us? We can't be like that guy in Matthew 18, the unforgiving servant who goes out and just chokes that other servant who owes him 100 denarii. 100 denarii is not pennies, but compared to 10,000 talents worth of of debt it's nothing so if we as the church are going to be a gospel greenhouse that's the title for the message this morning the church is like a gospel greenhouse if we're going to be a gospel greenhouse for growth into christ-like maturity we need to make sure that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble we've got to be good gospel gardeners we've got to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called And that's not just knowing truth or even just speaking truth. It also has to do with the manner in which we do what we do, the manner in which we say what we say. So notice where Paul goes first to unpack this worthy walk. And just by the way, the first point's going to be the longest one. So um, the last two will be briefer. So look at verse 2. What's this worthy walk look like? What's the manner in which it gets fleshed out? Well, with all humility and gentleness. That word gentleness is sometimes translated as meekness. Okay, I love what John Stott says. He says that someone who is meek is a master of himself and a servant of others. Isn't that a great summary? Meekness is not weakness because it takes self-mastery And it actually takes strength and security to be willing to humble yourself and serve someone else. So does pride harmonize with our calling? Certainly not spiritual pride, certainly not any kind of pride. No, because it's all grace, right? 
Humility accords with our calling. So to walk in a manner worthy of the calling is to walk with all humility. So we talked about it a few weeks ago. You know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The grace of the gospel disallows any superiority complexes. None of us is any better than anyone else. So Paul is pressing toward unity here in the church, walking together in a manner worthy. And what does pride do? It kills unity because we start to have this little caste system and we're looking down on other people. So pride is out of step with the gospel and it's out of step with our Savior. Do you know anywhere else where you hear humility and meekness put together? Humility and gentleness? How about Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30? Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly the same words as in Ephesians 4.2 and you will find rest for your soul so if we are yoked to Jesus united to Christ then we are going to be walking with him with all humility and gentleness it's how he's dealt with us it's how he deals with us and it's how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling Paul goes on with patience, bearing with one another in love. Do you see how this is all about the manner in which we walk? So we've got to ask ourselves, I've got to ask myself, and I'm guilty here, are you patient with people? Do you tend to overlook minor offenses and extend grace and understanding? Or are you nitpicky and critical and more focused on their flaws than God's grace in their lives? Do you give your brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt or are there lots of buts in your descriptions of others? What do I mean by that? <laughs> Have you ever heard yourself talk? Well, he's a good teacher, but dot, dot, dot. Here's the bigger thing I want to say. Well, she's a real servant, but dot, dot, dot. Are we bearing with one another in love? So walking impatiently with others in the church is out of step with our calling. Treating people in exacting, you know, one strike and you're out sort of ways is out of step with our calling. God has been incredibly patient, lavish with the riches of his grace. And yet here we are, spring-loaded to be stingy with other people in forgiveness and understanding and patience and service. When we do that, we've lost sight of our calling. We need to go back and review Ephesians 1, 2, 3 and get on our knees and pray just like Paul prayed in chapter 1 and chapter 3 to get this stuff that we know up here down into here so that it then gets worked out in the way that we walk with one another. So we lose patience with others when we lose sight of God's patience with us and we begin to give pride a foothold. So we can easily get frustrated, you know, tired of things not happening the way we want them to on our timetable. And this impatience, what does that do? Does it unify the church? <laughs> does it build up the church? No, it divides and tears down. So we need to slow down and consider our calling. 
when we're frequently impatient with people, underneath is pride. We think we're better than them. So go back, you know, with humility. Previous, you know, phrase. So listen, none of us is clicking on all cylinders all the time in every category. <laughs> none of us has it all together. We're all going to make mistakes. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to let each other down. We're all limited and imperfect. So we need to look a bit more often and honestly at God's patience toward us. His incredible forbearance with us. And we will be humbled and our fuse will grow so that we can walk along with those whom we might normally tend to just leave in the dust or at least want to leave in the dust. So if we look around this hospital and think, man, I'm sick and tired of being all around these, all these sick people, we might need to be reminded that um, we all need a soul doctor. So you want God to be patient with you, to bear with you in love, and how often we want others to be patient and forbearing and understanding with us, and how can we justify being impatient and intolerant and nitpicky with others. So I'm not saying that we should never confront or correct each other, not at all. I'm saying that the gracious, patient, forbearing posture of God with us needs to characterize our dealings with one another. Again, consider your calling. Our walk is to be shaped by our calling. So just again, think about how our Father bears with us. He knows our sin. He knows our stubbornness. He knows it all. He knows our frame. He knows that we're but dust. And he loves us and he's for us and he's with us. His love is more stubborn than our stubbornness toward him. So the more we know his love, the more we'll be enabled to walk with each other in love. And the more we will be eager to maintain, verse 3, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. After all, look at reality in verses 4 to 6. There is one body, the body of Christ, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. He brings up the idea of calling again, in light of your calling. One Lord, that's Jesus. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You can see this beautiful Trinitarian reference here who is over all and through all and in all. So we are walking together, seeking to walk together in a manner worthy of our calling. That is a result of knowing our calling, knowing the hope of our calling. That's why Paul prayed the way that he did back in chapter 1. So when we know God, our triune God, he is one in three when we know his calling, his grace, his patience, his forbearance, and that will flesh itself out in the way that we relate to one another. So we've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We don't create that unity. The Spirit does that through the gospel. Remember back in chapter 2, he's made us one you know, abolishing the dividing, line, the dividing wall of hostility. And he's creating this new humanity, this united humanity, reconciling us to God, reconciling us to one another through the cross. 
So we've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are called to protect and maintain it. We don't create it, but we're called to maintain it. So if we give way to pride and get impatient and critical and judgmental with one another, it's going to kill the unity. We're going to stress and fracture the unity of the Spirit rather than maintain and protect it. So listen, we've got to be eager. This is, the word is emphasized in the Greek, like we've got to be eager for this. We can't sit back with indifference toward the unity of the church. I mean, just look at how important this is to God. Look at how integral this is to our calling. Look at how it flows from the very nature and glory of our triune God. So are you eager to maintain it? We're going to walk either in a way that's kind of like nails on the chalkboard dissonance with our calling, or we're going to go with the grain, the spirit rock grain of our calling and maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So a while back, um, we did a series, this is years ago, um, called Gospel Culture, and it was kind of inspired by this book by Ray Ortland, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. Really, really, really good book. Highly recommend it. Um, so the nutshell of the series was that gospel doctrine produces a gospel culture, at least it's supposed to. We don't want to undo with our lives what we profess with our lips. We want to instead adorn with our lives what we profess with our lips. So the gospel is supposed to create a culture in the church. So our conduct as the people of God can either undermine our creed or it can adorn it and illustrate it, make it beautiful, visible. So here's Ortland with a quote that summarizes these thoughts well. He writes this, the gospel calls for more than doctrinal subscription. It also calls for cultural incarnation in flesh, flesh and blood. We would be unfaithful to settle for doctrinal correctness without also establishing a culture of grace in our churches. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The gospel does more than renew us personally within. The doctrines of grace also create a culture of grace called a healthy church, where the gospel is articulated at the level of doctrine and incarnated at the level of culture and vibe and ethos and feel and relationships and community. But getting a church there and keeping a church there is not easy. Without the doctrine, the culture is unsustainable. Without the doctrine, the culture is unsustainable. Without the culture, the doctrine appears pointless and powerless. Don't you want both of those things to characterize us here at Bethel? I hope you all do. Then recognize that that kind of culture is the responsibility of all of us who've been called by God. This is something that we actually cultivate to create that culture. It's a daily, weekly work in our own hearts and lives, in our homes, in your community group, and in this church as a whole. So how important is this to you? At the community group level, What do you do when there's a lack of sweetness or a lack of strength in your community group? Are you indifferent? Do you just like avoid the problems? Ugh, got enough to do. 
Even if you don't know how to fix it, do you pray? Or is, ah, I'd just rather not bother. I don't even want to go next time. Do you pretend things are fine and just ignore them? Or do you engage? Do you consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds? Lord, how, how can I be just like a shot in the arm for our group or for our Bible study or for our, this ministry? Or, Lord, how can you use me on a Sunday morning to just pump grace and love and warmth and welcome into the atmosphere on a Sunday morning? So it could be at a smaller group level. It could be on a Sunday morning. Again, there's probably people in this room, in this church, that rub you the wrong way if you've been here any length of time. So what do you do about that? Are you indifferent? Passive? How can we walk in a manner worthy of our calling toward them, with them? And also, let's extrapolate, I think it's a fitting time to do this, let's extrapolate this out to One for Wilmington. What's been your posture toward the One for Wilmington events? You gonna come this Friday? Were you planning on coming this Friday? I mean, I think there's been a good group of folks that have prioritized these things, but there's also a lot of you that, eh, it just seems like that's been the, the posture. Eh, Do you believe that the unity of the church, and I don't just mean the local church, although I do mean that for sure, but beyond that is important to God? I think it's clear in Ephesians 4 here. Like, oh boy. Okay, I'm not going to go off on that tangent. I'm going to bring it up later, don't worry. Because you, you need to know, maybe I'll try to just plug this in. Okay. Do you know that over and over again in the book of Ephesians, the small, ordinary, mundane things that we do have cosmic significance? So, Ephesians chapter 1, this is dangerous because I'm going off. I know it's okay. So, Ephesians chapter 1, what is this amazing plan of redemption all about? Where is it headed? So, God lavished upon us all this grace, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's where everything's headed. Jesus is Lord. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The church is an outpost of the kingdom. It's heaven on earth already. It's the already. It's the preview of coming attractions. So here's the point. As you read through Ephesians, you get this terrestrial level and a cosmic level. Over and over again, like what's going on, you know? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and rulers, like what, what does that mean? Well, that's a fitting conclusion. But that's not where it started. Hey, chapter two, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You know, we're all just like living for ourselves and for sin. But then it says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Oh man, I was a slave to Satan. And then in chapter three, Paul writes that this 
all this grace was given to bring to light for everyone is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? To your neighbors? No, although that's true too. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What is going on here? Here's what's going on. Do you know that every time you walk in a manner worthy with humility and gentleness rather than pride and a rights orientation with this superiority complex looking down your nose at somebody else, you are saying, not just to your kids, although they need to see it, not just to your friends, although we need to encourage each other in all this, not just to your neighbors, although they need to see the the grace of Christ at work in our lives, you are saying to the principalities and powers, you know what? Your days are numbered. Jesus Christ is already seated on the throne in heaven. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. All of human history is moving unstoppably to the day when he's going to return and set everything to rights. And he's going to be Head over all, and everything's going to be united in its proper place under his kingship. And there's not going to be anything wrong, no more rebellion. Everything made new. And so, guess what, husbands? Oh, little preview of what's to come. Every time you sacrificially love your wife, even if she doesn't even notice, that mundane act when done by grace through faith in Jesus, you are saying, I'm taking my marching orders from King Jesus. He's Lord. Satan is not. You are a defeated foe. And this is, this is the kingdom coming already. So I'm putting you on notice, principalities and powers. Here's who's in charge, and he's my Lord, and I'm following him. I'm going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which I've been called. So when we say, I don't know how we could express unity. I mean, the church is so fractured and divided, and how do we do this? I don't know. The four of us pastors have just been kind of like stumbling along trying to figure this thing out over the last few years, but there's so many ways in which in small but over time big ways we're able to unite and express that unity. You know what? There's a, a family that moved in next door to us from Epiphany. <laughs> it's awesome. And they were praying for their neighbors, and we walked over there yesterday, and we've got a family that's going to be coming in and living in the farmhouse after the Kirks leave. That are do, like that guy is doing an internship at Epiphany, and like th- there's all this oneness stuff going on. And we can show the world actually churches across denominational lines can actually unite with substantive, not some cheap, lowest common denominator, milk toast, you know, everybody hold hands and sing, we are the world. No, real gospel unity. And we are not only showing Wilmington that Jesus is real and the gospel is real, we're also saying to the principalities and powers, the cosmic declaration, you know what? The church is on the move. King Jesus is at work. He is the head. He is in charge. He's the Lord. And we are not going to follow along like little lackeys and lemmings by the nose, following Satan, following our flesh. We're going to follow Jesus. Okay.
There's the end of that little excursus, and I don't know what's left. <laughs> so, but see, that's going to come up over and over again. Make sure you keep that framework in mind. Because when we get to husbanding and wifing and parenting and kids with your parents, kids, the way that you respond to your parents can be cosmically significant. And if you are an employee and if you are an employer, the way in which you work has cosmic significance as well as earthly significance. All right, the last two are quick. Okay, so we can feel a little overwhelmed with all that, but King Jesus intends to equip us so that we can use our gifts for the building up of the body so that Jesus is everything, and visibly so. All right, point number two, work by grace to build the body, verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us, okay? So we're all one, but each one matters. You are not an invisible, unimportant part of the whole. Grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This is a quote from Psalm 68. We could spend a lot of time here. We won't. The nutshell is this. In Psalm 68, the march of Yahweh to conquer the nations and establish his kingship is at the heart of that psalm. The idea is when you conquer, like if you were a king and you conquered and you ascended to assume your rule, you can either use your victory for selfish self-glory purposes or you can bless others with that power. So Jesus rose and exalted, he was exalted and he used his victory to bless and give gifts to us. So why did he descend and ascend that he might fill all things? Kind of like that excursus I just went on, okay? How's he going to do this? How's he going to fill all things? We'll keep reading and we'll see what gifts he gave and what their purpose is. He gave the apostles and prophets foundation, like back in 220. The evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So we're given grace gifts in order to give grace, in order to use those gifts to build up the body of Christ. So these gifts are not the only gifts that are given. Like if you're not an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher, then, oh, I guess it doesn't matter. No, there are other lists, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4. But the point here is the purpose of the gifts. Evangelists, pastors, and teachers use their gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So, the pastors and teachers are not to do the work for the saints. They are to equip the saints for the work. Okay, so we're all called to ministry. It's true. All of us are called to ministry. We're all called to work by grace to build the body. So are you using your gifts for that purpose? Verse 15 goes on to unpack it a little bit more on how we do this. How do we live out this calling to ministry? Verse 15, rather rather than the instability and immaturity that he talked about in verse 14, speaking the truth in love. See it? You can speak the truth, but you can do it in a way that it's not in accord with the calling, in a manner worthy of the calling. Speak the truth in love. 
And when you speak the truth in love in the body of Christ, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, see, every part's important, every role, every gift, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So it takes all of us, each and every one of us, using our gifts for the building up of the body. And how long are we supposed to do this work? When will we know that we're done? Last point. Grow up together until Christ is all in all. And he gave, look at verse 11. And he gave these gifts, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Here it is. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. One new man, remember chapter 2? New humanity, a mature new humanity. Adam was the old head of the old humanity. And that, he fell and everybody fell as a result. We're all dead in our sins. Jesus is the second Adam, creating a new people. Mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, how's this going to happen? Speaking the truth in love, each, each and every one of us. Verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So this is our business, brothers and sisters, until Jesus comes back. This is going to be our job description in the church until Jesus comes back. And it belongs to each and every follower of Jesus, everyone who has been called out of darkness into his marvelous light is called to this work. This calling we've been given is God pronouncing a woe on the status quo. So we should not have too low of expectations. Like God intends us to grow and change and to use each and every one of us to help. We can't be indifferent to this calling to build the church. If we are indifferent to this calling, perhaps we should question whether we've been called out of darkness into light in the first place. The church is intended to be a gospel greenhouse for growth. God's gonna supply all we need, all the spiritual sunlight and water and minerals and nutrients, all the grace that we need. He gives gifts. He gives grace. But he gives that grace so that we then can give grace and truth and love and actively work to build up the church to unified maturity. <clears throat> so I'm going to close with, close with two quotes so that musicians can come on up here and I'll read these two quotes and we'll pray and close with a final song. First one from Ray Ortland. Again, this book and then one from Don Whitney. <clears throat> what does the gospel create in this present world that wasn't here before? What does it create that wasn't here before? The gospel does not hang in midair as an abstraction. By the power of God, the gospel creates something new in the world today. It creates not just a new community, but a new kind of community. Gospel-centered churches are living proof that the good news is true, that Jesus is not just a theory, but is real as he gives back to us our humanness. 
In its doctrine and culture, words and deeds, such a church makes visible the restored humanity only Christ can give. Gospel doctrine creates gospel cultures called churches where wonderful things happen to unworthy people for the glory of Christ alone. But it doesn't end in our churches. A gospel-defined church is a prophetic sign that points beyond itself. I love this. It is a model home of the new neighborhood Christ is building for eternity. People can walk into this kind of church right now to see human beauty that will last forever. Such a church makes heaven real to people on earth so they can put their faith in Christ now while they still have the chance. And then this quote by Don Whitney. And that glorious vision will be realized, this vision of the church and glorious maturity in Christ, will be realized in a million ordinary, unsung, daily, weekly, behind-the-scenes, faithful uses, sorry, this is me, not Don Whitney, I'll get there, Um, of grace gifts for the building of the body of Christ. Okay, so these loving acts can seem small and insignificant, but here's Whitney's quote that shows the true significance of our part to play in all this. Imagine a history book written in heaven a million years after the end of the earth. How much space will it devote to the stock market, corporate mergers, presidential elections, and sports championships? Won't it be dominated instead by actions in and through the local church, deeds that passed unnoticed at the time by people the world overlooked? The names of many mighty and noble may be mere footnotes, but the names of those who love the Lord and minister to his saints will fill its pages. And written in gold letters on the flyleaf may be this inscription, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Hebrews 6, 10. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your rich beyond comprehension grace toward us. And we pray that you would please by the blood of the eternal covenant equip us with everything good that we may do your will working in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus that you might be glorified in us, in your church, now and forever. Amen.